Hey everyone, welcome to Tone Benders. I will be your host for today. I'm Timothy Muirhead. Renee is sitting this one out. It's been a crazy summer for us here at the podcast. We've both been crazy busy with work and personal stuff, and as a result, the last few episodes, either Renee or myself have been hosting, and we haven't been on the same podcast at the same time. So hopefully this will be the last one like that for a while. We have some cool ideas for future segments, so please stay tuned. Can you stay tuned to a podcast? You know what I mean. Uh, I also wanted to say a big fast thanks to everyone who has helped us out by using the Amazon or B&H links on our site. We super appreciate it, and a special big thanks to those that have left us tips via our site PayPal link. We've been doing this podcast for three years now, and the monthly expenses to put it out are not astronomical, but if you take that monthly amount and multiply it by the 36 months we've been doing it, it starts to add up. So we once again want to say thanks to everyone who's helped us out that way. Uh, We do all this without any annoying ads, and we'd love to keep it that way. So if you guys have a couple of spare bucks, it would be great if you could send it our way. But if you can't, don't worry. It's always going to be free. Don't worry. Okay, to today's episode. This one is a bit different for Tonebenders. Today we hear an interview I did with Rich Van Dyke, an extremely accomplished production sound mixer. I went to the NAB conference in 2014, and I was able to grab a bunch of interviews there. You can hear some of the previous ones that we did in episodes 30 and 24. But while I was there, I talked to Rich, and somehow it never got released until now, and that's a super big shame, because this is a really fun interview, and it should have seen the light of day before now. Rich is one of only a handful of production sound mixers to have worked on multiple Best Picture Oscar winners. In his case, it was for American Beauty and Crash. He's also been nominated for numerous other awards and worked with the cream of the crop of Hollywood directors, including Ridley Scott, Steven Soderbergh, Warren Beatty, James Mangold, and tons of others. He's also quite the raconteur. I had to cut some great stories out of this episode for time, and I wish they could have been included because they were hilarious. He's a super nice guy who made time to do this interview right on the NAB convention floor so you can hear the din of the floor behind us. He had lots of other things he could have been doing during that time, so we really appreciate him taking the time to talk to us and, by extension, talking to you. Please remember, though, this interview was conducted a year and a half ago, so some things uh, are a little out of date. But I think you're going to really enjoy the stories of the films that he's worked on, how he got his start, and the gear he leans on to capture great sounds while on set. So uh, let's kick it off to Rich. Now off to the NAB floor, back in time to 2014. <laughs> So we're on the NAB floor with Rich Van Dyke, a seasoned uh, location mixer or production mixer. I guess. Production mixers, yeah. You know, I always felt was because that's that was how I perceived myself. I always considered myself a filmmaker whose expertise was sound, and so my focus was how to, whenever they were setting up a shot, how would I like to hear that shot? There's certainly dialogue that had to be my main concern, but what if it was just a shot of a car driving by? And this is, to me, these were very interesting uh, choices. Most guys would still boom overhead and just get the sound of the car coming by. I always had an overhead mic, and then I liked the sound of the tires on gravel or on wet surface, so I'd always have another mic placed underneath to give more, to fill out the, the scene grader with more sound. And that's something you know you can do as the sound mixer on location. You give them all these options, especially now with the multi-track recorders we have. You can add all kinds of microphones and do all kinds of things to give them more choices in post, which is what our job is in, in production. Do you want to just give us a quick overview of how you got into the business? Sure. My lineage into the film business was my grandfather grew up in Natchez, Mississippi. In the 1900s, he drove out to Hollywood and became a silent film star. And uh, when he got married to my uh, grandmother, who is an Academy Award-winning costume designer, (laughs) she uh, won her Academy Award for Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor and Burton. Wow. And um, That's a real costume film. uh, They were messing around in that one. Absolutely. Then my dad, of course, because his father was in the film business and an actor, he encouraged him to go into it too. So he worked on films with Orson Welles. He was in a film Orson Welles directed called The Stranger. And uh, also at nine years old, he's in Gone with the Wind. And then one of the most amazing scenes they did, the big crane shot reveal of the uh, city of Atlanta's railroad station, which was literally a construction crane carrying the camera. And the great stories are, you know, they had thousands of extras that day, but they also had a bunch of dummies. 
So the extras had to move the bodies next to them, the dummy next to them to make it look like it was still alive. So my, fa my grandfather, after his film, his acting career ended, he chose to go and buy an insurance company. Then when my father got married, he went to work for my, uh, his father in the insurance company, and he expanded the business into film production, to cover film productions. They became very successful doing low to, mid, you know, low to independent level uh, film productions. He also insured um, the studios and rental houses and stuff. And one of them that he insured was a post sound house that had a narration booth and also had some small rental equipment. And also this was 1973, so there were film transfer recorders. He was checking in with this fellow that owned the sound company. It was called Sound Services Incorporated, which is still in business today to see them and check their policy and check the equipment and everything. And the owner of the company was complaining that his delivery driver had left to quit on him that day. And he was in a bit of a quandary as to what he was going to do. So my dad called me up when he left and he said, hey, you know what? If you call this guy up, I bet he could hire you today because he's desperate. So I called the guy up and he said, come on in, you're hired. Over the phone because he, was, he knew my dad and just said, fine. Like everyone else, I had taken sound for granted. You know, when you go to the movies, you just assume there's going to be sound. You know, until George Lucas told everyone that the audience was listening, everybody went to the movies to watch a movie. Yeah. And uh, so I, I was fascinated by the fact that there were guys that were concerned about how critically things sounded. I, I don't know if you ever remember the RCA logo was the dog yeah. hearing his master's voice on the gramophone. And that's how I felt these guys were. These guys were all like that dog listening, leaning into the speaker going, did you hear that? I, I, yeah, oh yeah. And then I was thinking, I didn't hear anything they're talking about. So I had to sit there and all I was required to do was to deliver, make deliveries. But I was watching them and absorbing how they were doing tra film transfers and this, that, and the other thing that we did there. And I eventually started to do the film transfers and then was promoted to marking slates on film, which was my first job, uh, with it, or beyond being a driver there. And Mike Denicky, who invented the time code slate, was our maintenance engineer. And Mike and I became, you know, he became my mentor. And um, I went over to his apartment and he has all these Heathkit, who was a company that you could build your own electronic things. He had a Heathkit, a whole Heathkit stereo, and he bought me a kit and said, here, you need to learn how to put this stuff together to understand how this stuff works. So I said, okay. And uh, Mike then took me under his wing and taught me about the Nagra, taught me about microphones, how to make recordings and everything. And then it was through his encouragement that I went out to, to mix on my own. And I started in 1976 to go out and do commercials because we had a lot of contacts at our studio with commercial houses. And I decided that um, it would be interesting to see uh, um, if I could make a go at that. And one of the first jobs I did was an audition for the Dodge Girl for 1978 uh, uh, commercial campaign. And the director was an older guy who just really liked, liked me for whatever, whatever reason. Liked my demeanor, liked the way I worked, whatever it was. And um, uh, he, when we finished the day, I was not in the union and he said, Richie, what are you doing for the next uh, three months? And I said, oh, you know, when I don't do day calls, I go back to the studio. And he said, listen, he goes, don't take any more day calls. I'm going to keep you busy for the next three months. And I did the 1978 Dodge car and truck campaign with him, which got me the days that enabled me to get in the union. And it was a great experience. The cameramen were the top cameramen of the day. Fred Camp was one of the you know, first guys we worked with. And Fred Camp had shot Papillon with Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman and Towering Inferno. And it was a really you know, well-known, well-respected Hollywood cameraman. Owen Roisman was another big cameraman we worked with. Benny Coleman, all these really legendary cameramen. And Rich Van Dyke, who was 19 years old, wearing shorts. And I never kept my shirt on because I used to perspire so much out of my nervousness of being on the set with these giants that I would take my shirt off so that at lunchtime, I could put my shirt on and it would be dry. <laughs> but. Uh, it was great, and I, I had a great career going in, uh, in commercials. They pay very well, and I was very happy and content doing them. And then I started to feel like, you know, I want to do series, I want to do features, I want to have some recognition. 
So I started to seek that out, that kind of worked out, and got footholds in, did some TV series. I, I did a very legendary TV series called Moonlighting. Uh, yes, I love that show. Yeah, it was a great show at the time. It was phenomenally fun to be on. The first year, I, I just did the first two seasons. Um, the cameraman was really difficult to work with for sound. And he was a very old school, old crotchety, mad, angry cameraman. And it was sad to work with him. I got to work with Orson Welles. The, you know, we, we shot Orson Welles on Monday. He died Thursday. And the show aired the following Tuesday. It was an amazing experience. And then especially since my dad had worked with Orson Welles as a director, it was the one connection that I had with my dad's career in film and my career in film. And I had always wanted to work with Lawrence Kasdan because my grandmother's last feature film was Body Heat, his first feature film directing. And I had always hoped that I was going to get an opportunity to work with him because that would be my connection with her film career. But it, as of yet, it hasn't happened. There's still a chance to. <laughs> Then um, Moonlighting was such a big deal. We had overlapping dialogue all day long. There, the thing about shooting Moonlighting was there were no rules. They did not, the, another mixer, John Speak, a very accomplished television mixer, did the pilot, but he would not allow them to do the overlapping dialogue. He refused to uh, record it that way. And so in my interview with Glenn Gordon Karen, the creator and producer of Moonlighting, he asked me how I felt about recording overlaps, and I said, you know, I, I think it could probably be done. You know, it was, sounded like an interesting challenge to me. And I thought, you know, the, you have to, as a sound mixer, you are the connection with the editorial department on set. And you really need, it, or you don't need to have them, but it benefits you and the production if you do have that experience and knowledge. Because if the director is shooting something that doesn't match, or if uh, you're recording something that won't cut easily, that's going to screw up the guys in post. So having that, that history and that knowledge really always enabled me to get, um, get good tracks and get tracks that would cut together well. And on Moonlighting, I had an amazing ability to yell cut if the overlaps weren't working. And I had talked to Bruce and Sybil, and it was difficult for them because sometimes they had huge speeches to give while they were overlapping. I, we talked to each other, and I always told them, I said, you need to pick a word that you're going to start overlapping on and then your pace and your cadence has to remain the same because then it will always match. If you always start at that same word, uh, like if Sybil's line is first, I don't know what you're talking about, and then Bruce would come in on top of talking. If he would start on talking every time, then it would always line up. And the editors loved it. They loved the fact that we were breaking the rules and doing all this, you know, wild Well, that was stuff. one of the things that made that show great was that it seemed so uh, energetic and kinetic. Yeah. It seemed actually like an amazingly fun show to work on. From Moonlighting, that gave me a lot of opportunities in the television world because of, you know, the respect that the show had garnered. And I went on to do a, um, another six episodes of a very uh, prestigious series called China Beach. China Beach, yeah. Which was a really, that was a fun show in that I loved military stuff. My father was a military guy, so I loved being around that stuff. The stories were really phenomenal, and the acting was really exceptional. And, um, but unfortunately, it was shot at Warner Brothers, and <clears throat> Warner Brothers is the last studio that has a sound department, and they supply sound gear to the shows. While I was working on it, I wasn't getting any equipment rental. While it was a nice, fun show, and I was making some money, it wasn't that appealing to me because all my gear was sitting at home while I was working. Then I decided that, well, okay, now I've got all these great credits and series, let's go on to the feature world. And I realized to do features, you have to have done features. How does that happen? That's Catch-22. I started doing a bunch of real low-budget, non-union films just to get credits. Because I'd heard these stories about other mixers I admired and that they had done, you know, 75 or 100 non-union films before they did their first union picture. And I thought, oh my gosh, that could be a career in itself. Yeah, exactly. The non-union films were, were good to give me some credits in feature world. And then I tried to, to bump that up to the next level of working in you know, more prestigious films and more and more. Uh, where I had established myself as was a mixer who was great at getting dialogue, clean dialogue, uh, so that you're, you wouldn't have to have a lot of ADR on your film, which is you know, what we are all trying to achieve. When I always felt when I went to see a movie, I wanted to hear my sound up there, not 
ADR work or, but you know, there's always certain situations you get in, they want to change the line of dialogue or they, uh, the environment we're shooting in, like we were shooting here, they'd probably replace a lot of this. Uh, so in uh, 1989, I moved to Wilmington, North Carolina. My wife and I were going to have a child, and we decided to try and raise her in a, in a smaller town than Los Angeles. And Wilmington had a big film community at the time. Dino De Laurentiis had built a studio there, but the studio was constructed right across the street from an airport. <laughs> but he got the land for free from the city, and they said, you know, why, why not? And uh, it was a great experience because it was a nice small town and uh, they did a lot of TV movies there. Unfortunately, they were all non-union, but it was you know lower cost of living and it was a wonderful place to live. And I got what I consider one of my big breaks in the feature world there, doing a film called Rambling Rose, starring Laura Dern, her mother, uh, Diane, La Diane Ladd, Robert Duvall, and Laura Dern got nominated for an Oscar for that one? She and her mother both got nominated yeah, totally. for Oscars. Yeah. The only time a mother and daughter have been nominated for Oscars. And Martha Coolidge was the director. So what I used to do, when I would go to see a director for an interview, I would view all their movies beforehand and critique the sound and see if, what I might have done differently or better. So that when I went in for my interview, I could speak intelligently to the director about his work and also comment about how I might be able to make something better or I would have done something different in this situation that would have maybe made him think that uh, maybe I know what I'm doing and that I care. Because uh, I went in to talk to Martha and I thought Martha's previous movie sounded terrible. Valley Girl was a big hit, but it's not a very good sounding movie. And, but it also was made as a low budget film and you know those kind of things kind of go together. When I first met her, I said, I know that I can give you a better soundtrack than you've ever had in your films before. And she said, wow, that's a pretty bold statement. I said, I'm that confident. I've listened to your movies. I know that I could have done a better job for you with the equipment that I have. And she said, okay. And she gave me the opportunity to mix the movie. It was a great experience. We all booms. We, I used a, certain, a specific microphone. I used a shotgun microphone, the Neumann KMR 82i. And I used it because I had been reading about signal to noise ratio in dialogue and environment. And of course, the narrower pattern of a mic you have on the mouth, which is the signal, the greater, the lesser your uh, background noise is going to be, which is the noise floor. So we did we did the movie with that, and it was fantastic. You know. Uh, there was one problem in the film, and if you listen to the director's track of it, there's a scene where Laura Dern climbs in bed with Lucas Haas to have his first little sexual experience. So Martha wanted to shoot with two cameras because she didn't want to you know, redo any, or miss any moment. We shot the scene with two cameras, and they're both noisy cameras. So after the first take, I said to Martha, I said, you know, this is a problem. We, these cameras are really noisy. And one of the things that happens with camera noise, and especially in North Carolina, because of the humidity, the film is kept in air conditioning, which makes the film kind of brittle. So when you bring it into a warm environment, if it doesn't have time to acclimate, you're running this cold film through that's brittle, and as the claw comes up to pull down the film, it's actually, you're hearing that. You're snapping the holes and tearing some of the perfs. And that, you hear that because it comes right through the lens. I explained it to Martha and I said, you know, I, I'm sure there's a certain amount of it they can lessen in post, but they certainly can't remove it. And she said, oh, I, we have to go with it and we're going to, you know. And for the same reason that she wanted two cameras, we also wanted to be able to capture the sound for that moment because ADRing a scene like that yeah. can be very difficult because you're, you're in a moment and you're in a, you know, emotional state that you can't recreate on a stage. In the commentary, Martha makes mention of how loud the camera noise is and that it was something we knew about, but she made the compromise for this shot. And for the most part, people don't remember it or they're not aware of it. And that's the good thing about a, a well-made film with good performances is that you're not noticing the bad stuff because you're so involved in the film and so invested in the moment that you're not thinking about, oh, did you hear that camera noise all over that? But if you're a sound guy, you might have heard it. Every time I watch that movie, you can bet I hear it. 
and then from Ramblin' Rose, uh, I had moved back to Los Angeles in 96. I'd done a, a really wonderful series in Wilmington called American Gothic, which was a really great dark series for CBS in the um, early 90s, the 94, 95 season, I think. It's one of the things I, I always loved is I love actors. I, you know, I think they're interesting people. I really enjoy the interaction with them. And I, I honestly believe that I can hear when you're acting. And that is something from listening to people act for over 30 years, I feel I developed a sense of awareness as to when I could feel that something was either forced or contrived or if it was genuine. And the most intense moment of that experience for me happened on American Beauty. Um, the scenes between Ricky Fitz and his dad, uh, Colonel Fitz, where he's accusing him of uh, having sex with Kevin Spacey's character, where my dad was a colonel in the military, and I told Chris Cooper after the you know, after we shot the master, I went down, I went up to him, and I said, "Hey, Chris, I got to tell you, man, the hair on the back of my neck was straight up while we were rolling because." it really rang true to me. I said, that was really an intense moment for me. And he really appreciated that I recognized that and that I could actually hear that. He was fascinated by the fact that, he, that I felt that I could recognize and judge his performance based on only listening to his voice. But I do believe it's something we can hear. Just as much as when you may call your girlfriend or your wife and you say, you sound down. I felt that I could have that, I had that same ability to tell when an actor was acting, forcing a performance, because I always liked to get to know them. I would always like to engage the actor before the, we started filming and talk to them so that I would get a sense of their voice and how, how it sounded in a natural environment. So that when I was recording them, if I wanted them to sound the same if I was booming them or if I had them uh, wired. And American Beauty really, for many reasons, was a pinnacle moment in my career. I mean, uh, I'll go backwards for a little bit. I worked with the same producer on one of the films we did when I first moved back to Los Angeles was a film with Paul uh, Mazursky called um, Winchell for HBO. Uh, Stanley Tucci played the character Walter Winchell. Paul Giamatti played his assistant. And um, Glenn Headley played um, Tucci's love interest, Walter Winchell's love interest. And that was a dream job for me too, because Mazursky was a big fan. I was a big fan of Mazursky's. And Paul Mazursky is a really, one of our last auteurs. And sadly, right now, he's in really frail health. But he, he just got honored a little, a uh, couple weeks ago, actually, in Los Angeles for a life achievement uh, accomplishment. And at the Cinema Audio Society Awards, when we gave him his Filmmakers Achievement Award, he thanked two sound people uh, for, uh, for all the people he worked with over the course of his year. The boom operator from down and out in Beverly Hills, Crew Chamberlain, who was my first boom operator when I was doing commercials, and he thanked me. Because wow. he, he felt that I was, a, was one of the most dedicated sound guys he'd ever met and worked on with this film, and that I really had a sense of what I was doing. And Paul and I became really good friends. I'm still close to him to this day. His daughter, Jill, was a screenwriter as well. And when she went to do her, her uh, short film that she wanted to produce and direct, they called me to see if I would do the sound. And I told, uh, I told them, oh, I'd love to do the sound for your job. It was a four-day shoot. I did it for 100% free. All my gear, all my walkie-talkies, all my time, I gave them for free. And I just asked them to pay for my boom operator. And, um, because you know there were people complaining about the hours we were working and the meals we were being fed. And I was like the happiest guy on set. Because I, I always felt that you make your deal up in front and then just do the job. The best thing about films, working on films, is that it's not a 30-year experience that you're gonna be working on this film. It's 10 weeks and then I'll see you later. And so if it's a bad experience, just make the best of it, get through it, and don't complain. Don't be the guy that's whining and planning. That's at the end of the at the end of the job. He's trying to re recapture the good graces of the company, and they're thinking you've been whining and planning for nine weeks. Now you're going to give me one week of joy? Forget that. You know, my thing was okay. I agreed to work for no money. Yahoo! Let's go. Let's make a movie. And that's how I felt it was because I knew Jill wasn't getting paid. I knew Steve wasn't getting paid and they were given their time, and they were actually probably given more of their time than I was. 
But we had a guy, there were several crew members that were complaining. And I loved them coming to me to try and get, you know, uh, empathy. And they'd say, you know, can you believe what they're doing to me? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, it's kind of a tough day for us right now. And he goes, well, I'm, I'm about to go to lunch because they're not, they haven't broken us now for over an hour. And I said, oh, I'm sure that, you know, when they can, we'll, you know, they'll break us for lunch. And he goes, no, I'm going to a restaurant. And I'm going to bring them the receipt for my meal. And I said, well, that's your choice. And he goes, don't you want to go? And I go, no. And he goes, how much money are you making on this? And I said, I'm not making a dime. <laughs> and he was really shocked to find out that, I, you know, I seem to be very content and happy with being there, not making any money. But it's because I love film. I really love being on film sets. One of my pitches uh, in my interviews to production was always, there's not enough hours in a day for you to work me, and you can't, can't work me hard enough. I love production. I love being on film sets. I, you know, you can't work me too long, can't work me too hard. It's all a challenge. And I loved accepting that challenge and being able to deliver a product that could be you know, used in the film. Now, so then uh, from working with Mazursky, that same producer took me on to American Beauty. My interview with Sam Mendes, a guy who had never done a film before in his life, because he was known for Broadway at that point. Not Broadway. Well, yes, or no Broadway. He had just theater. done Broadway. Yeah, live theater. He was uh, had a good reputation in England, and then he had come on Broadway that Spielberg saw, and then Spielberg hired him to give him the op option to do American Beauty. And American Beauty was one of the most amazing scripts I'd ever read. As soon as I read it, I said, this is going to be a great film. And then they told me the cast, <laughs> Annette Bening, Kevin Spacey, Chris Cooper, Wes Bentley, Allison Janney was his mom. And then the greatest cinematographer of all time, Conrad Hall, shot the movie. And that was one of my things that I always loved on film sets too, because I had grown up with still cameras. I always was impressed with cameramen. And I always wanted them to like me. Because, you know, there was, there, in history, there was always friction between the camera department and the sound department. And uh, one of the things I used to say, and Conrad Hall loved it, after the first night of dailies, American Beauty was the last film that we, the traditional way of shooting movies was you shot all day, watched all night, and then got up and did it all again. And I used to love to sit next to Conrad Hall in dailies because he would talk about his lighting uh, to the gaffer. And I would love hearing these stories about something they missed or something he did, or look at how that light is hitting this, and you know, just really phenomenal education on lighting. We walk out of dailies and I turn to him and I said, you know, Conrad, my sound has never looked so good. And he cracked up. He thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. Nobody had ever made a comment. He'd never even considered it that way. And I said, well, that's the way I look at your pictures. I said, I only hope that my sound is complimenting your images as much as your images are complimenting my sound. It was, you know, just a great experience. I, I cut a, a gag reel together for Annette Benning that was hilarious. There, there were so many great moments. And this is the thing that I really miss at this point about film production is that I like live stuff. I like live, going to live music, going to live plays, and production is the live part of filmmaking. And you see the good, the bad, the indifferent, let's try this, let's do this take in Swedish, you know, let's do this one left-handed instead of right-handed. And it was always interesting to me to see and hear and watch and listen to all these changes be implemented in the same take. American Beauty is really, it's, a, it's not the film we shot, but they edited it out. And I, when I first saw it, I was really stunned. I didn't think it was gonna be as good a film as it turned out to be. But uh, because I was expecting another movie. Yes. But once I gave it its chance to stand on its own, I realized that, oh yeah, nobody else knows about all this other stuff we shot except for me. And, uh, and it still, to this day, I think it, it holds up. It's an iconic film. I, I think so, I agree. Uh, then the next biggest film for me was Crash, probably, I guess. Uh, you know, the, the big thing is doing best pictures. And I'm actually in a small group of mixers that have done multiple best pictures. Uh, when I last looked this up, there were only six mixers in the history of film when they started listing mixers. Uh, I think it's around the late 60s sometimes when production sound and re-recording mixers actually got their individual credits. Before that, it was actually sound by the head of the sound department in every, whatever studio. And that was just the political thing of the way it was done, and eventually unions got us the credits that we deserved. So I'm very proud of that, of being a part of that elite group of best picture mixers. 
and Crash, the last week of the film, we're shooting the we're shooting the ending of the film in Chinatown when Chris Bridges releases all the Asian immigrants that are in the van, and um, Paul Haggis has a heart attack, and we shut down production for two weeks, and then came back and finished. We actually they changed the location of Brendan Fraser and Sandra Bullock's house to Paul's house in Santa Monica, so he didn't have to leave his house to do the directing. Uh, here's a little sound insider tip from that. When Sandra Bullock is walking through the house talking on the phone, she slips and falls down the stairs. I'm down at the base of the stairs in the living room uh, set up. There are hardwood floors in the living room, and every rehearsal when she would slip out of frame, I would mimic the sounds down there of stomping my feet as if she was falling down the stairs. And in the soundtrack, the last bit of her fall is my or my feet stomping on the floor downstairs. I thought it was hilarious that the uh, sound editor just left that in, yeah. And she was funny too. The first couple of rehearsals, she goes, who's making that, <laughs> that sound? And then she comes down to my sound card and she's, she stands opposite me on the sound card like you are, and she's looking at me and I just, I look at her and I said, is that a problem? She goes, no, I love it. <laughs> and I said, oh, great. But I love that that's still in there. I can hear that, I know that that's me. And Crash, like American Beauty, I was, I was nominated for BAFTA Awards, which are the British Academy of Film, Television, Arts. Great time. It, you know, it was really a great moment in my life, my personally, because my daughter was of an age where she was really able to recognize. I mean, she'd been, on my, she'd been sitting on my shoulders and on my sound card since she was born. We got flown to London by the producers of Crash and we're put up and we're housed at their house, got the big swag bag from them and everything. And she was just thrilled with it. She had her hair and makeup done, you know, and it was, when we're walking in to the, the ceremony, everybody's looking at her trying to figure out who she is. I'm in the tux, I'm going, hey, I'm the, I'm the nominee here, fellas. But it was a great moment. I really, really appreciate the production for sending us over there and everything, it was really nice. After Crash, you know, I did a lot of different movies and I never had an agent, and which is very prevalent for a lot of sound mixers on my level were to have agents, but I never had an agent. I sought out and went after every job that I ever got. And I did some small films, I did some big films, uh, but, and I gave them the best of my abilities every time, no matter what level of production it was. One of the next interesting things that came along to me was the Los Angeles portion of 310 to Yuma. I loved that movie, the original movie, Glenn Ford. It was shot in 18 days on the back lot at Fox Studios. Bang, they just did that movie. Uh, the, the one that I worked on was originally uh, scheduled to shoot all in New Mexico, but it was freezing at night, and all the night scenes couldn't be shot there because of the breath. Because if you remember the film, the film is about a drought that's happening, and Christian Bale's character has to pay for water for his crops. So uh, he travels to make the money to pay for the water. It was the first time I worked with Russell Crowe, great guy, and uh, he has a, uh, his dresser is this guy, um, Mickey. And Mickey wires Russell. Russell doesn't like to be touched a lot, and he doesn't want to be bothered. So we would give him his radio and the microphones, tell him where to put it, and everything was great. That's another film I'm very proud of. All my work on there is really, really excellent. The film was nominated for an Academy Award for sound, but there were actually three sound mixers on the show, and they could, only, they could only list one production mixer, so they gave it to the second mixer, Jim Stubbe, got the nomination. So then after 310 to Yuma, there were three films in a row I did that was really a, a great streak. I did a very small film called Fragments, is how it was released, it. and unfortunately, it, it was an interesting idea but just unfortunate timing. And it was about how all these people that were in the diner, when a madman comes into the diner and shoots everybody in the diner. And Dakota Fanning was in it, uh, Forrest Whitaker, um, Kate Beckinsale. It was a really, they had a great, assembled a great cast, but they had no money to make the film. They had a million dollars. I was working for low money, uh, but it was a short schedule. But unfortunately, there was an overlap to the next picture that I was gonna do. And so I told them I would do everything except for the last four days of the film. And we had such a great time on the film, but when it came time I had to leave, they really, you know, they were kind of upset. And that, that was something I learned that it's not the greatest thing to do, although I'd heard many people do that over the course of their careers, it can be a bridge burner.
and that one was for me with those producers. But I was, I was about to start forgetting Sarah Marshall, which was three months in Hawaii, paying me three times the money that the guys on that film were, were paying me. And I asked them, don't, you don't understand why I'm leaving four days early? But I understand, they had their production at, at heart and they wanted me on that. Then forgetting Sarah Marshall, a comedy, you know, it was just a great fun time. A lot of challenges on that because of working on the beach with surf and everything. And, and also we're shipping everything, all our film to uh, Los Angeles and it's coming back. So we were like four days out before we got our first dailies. And one of the first scenes was uh, Jason Siegel and this large Hawaiian man uh, on the beach. And the, the producer turns to me after dailies and says, my God, he goes, that, that sounded fantastic. He goes, to be honest, I go, I gotta tell you, I thought we were gonna loop all that stuff on the beach. And I said, there's no looping in my sound. And he goes, well, how did you do that? And I looked at him and I said, I have no idea. <laughs> Which was my favorite reaction to give these people when they were trying to give me a compliment. I'd say, really? <laughs> you know, I just try to act like I had no idea what I was doing. But they knew, you know, they knew that I did and they appreciated everything I did. And, and Sir Marshall was a, a challenge too because it was a Judd Apatow film and Judd Apatow has a, um, he has a formula for making his movies. And what it is, is he wants to get three good takes of as it's written, as scripted. And once you've got those three takes, you roll out three rolls of, ma of film with ad-libs. And from those ad-libs were some hilarious moments that didn't make it in the movie, but also just kept us all entertained. And, uh, and it's a challenge for me because we, used, we employed radio mics on the beach scenes to keep the background low. And um, you'd have, when mixing, when everybody's overlapping, can be very challenging. But, uh, but I thought I pulled it off pretty good. And you know, uh, the film's very well received and uh, it's a lot of fun. We also did some singing with Jason, uh, J Jason that he had wrote some songs and we recorded those live and that was a lot of fun too. And then I left Sarah Marshall and went back to Baltimore to do a film called Step Up 2 with a producer that had given me my first big break in film, David Nixay. And he called me up and said, hey, I'm doing this film in Baltimore. Why don't you come do it? And I said, oh, I'd love to. I'd love to work with you again. Uh, and then I had to make another tough choice because I got a call for a Ridley Scott film, Body of Lies, with two weeks to go on Step Up 2. And, um, the production manager was reticent to pull me off of another film because he didn't want to do that. He knew that he wouldn't like somebody else doing that to him. But my producer, David Nixay, and I having a long history together, David was very gracious in allowing me to leave if I did, in fact, get the job. The negotiation was about, I wanted to do the whole film. And if they wouldn't hire me for the whole film, I wasn't interested. I thought that was actually going to, you know, not, not get me the picture. Yeah. But then they called back the next day and said, okay. And I went, wow, I'm on. And that was the most challenging film I've ever done in my life. So that's uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Russell Crowe, right? Exactly. So yeah. half of it's in America and the other half shot is... In, shot in Morocco, but it takes place in Dubai and uh, Syria, Morocco for Syria. So we shoot the U.S. portions first, and, our, and I'm supposed to develop all these phone conversations in the movie uh, Russell Crowe is Leo's CIA handler and they talk to each other on the phone for the most part of the movie. So I got a directive from Italy saying that he wants to be able to have the phones practical and have the actors call and have me record both sides of these phone conversations. And I thought, oh my God, I've never done anything like this. So I sat down in my hotel room in Washington, D.C. Trying to research how to do all this stuff from a cell phone, from a multi-track phone, or multi-line phone, from a regular landline, and from a satellite phone, because you know in the CIA sometimes they use satellite phones. And I'll never forget one day in Washington D.C. when I've got my mixer and three phones and two phones I bought from Radio Shack and all these devices set up in my room, and the maid walks in and sees everything, and I go, "Can you come back later?" And she goes, "Yes." and slams the door and I thought, she probably thinks I'm some super spy, you know, in Washington, D.C., you know, ready to bring down the government or something. But uh, it was a challenge and, a, and really difficult to do these cell phone conversations. We shot a scene in Morocco where the actress playing Leo's uh, wife was in Amsterdam. We, all three of us, called the United States to get conferenced in 
and then we recorded the scene in Morocco using the cell phones. So I would have my cell phone at my sound cart pulling the audio of the actress in Amsterdam off of the phone and then we would record Leo talking to her in the scene in Morocco. And then in between takes, Ridley could bring up his phone and give direction to the actress in Amsterdam. And after it was done, Ridley came to me and said, my gosh, that was really a complicated scene, but you pulled it off seamlessly, everything worked great, and I peed in my pants. <laughs> no, because I peed in my pants, because I forgot to tell you, the very first day of filming, we're doing the uh, Amsterdam market bombing scene. And I walk up to Ridley, I never met him, I was supposed to meet him in pre-production, and the meeting got canceled. And um, I had never not met the director I was working with before the day of production. So I walked up to him and I said, uh, Mr. Scott, I said, I'm Rich Van Dyke, I'm going to be your production sound mixer on this film. And he turns to me and he says, God help you. <laughs> and that's because Ridley is known for shooting yeah. multiple cameras and um, really making life hard for sound mixers. But there's two Ridley Scott films that have won Academy Awards for Best Sound, Blade Runner and Black Hawk Down. So it is possible to work with Ridley and achieve something fantastic. And that's what I had hoped to do on Body of Lies. Unfortunately, the film wasn't well received, but it was a super challenge. I mean, a minimum camera setup was three cameras. And frequently we'd shoot six cameras and shooting all different directions. And the editors had asked me to, if I could make submixes that would focus on what that camera was seeing. So I had to think about this. And I said, yeah, I think I can do that. And the editors loved it because in the previous film they had done, American Gangster, the uh, mixer, Billy Soroykin, who I know and I think is a terrific mixer, he had um, opted to do it a more traditional uh, sound way and just do the primary sound for the shot. And any other shot that might not be focused on that, you'd add the sound later for them. But the editors had said it created a lot of extra work for them. So if I could somehow do this for them, create these submixes of what all the other cams were seeing, it could be a great help to them. And so I tried to achieve that. And this is how Ridley sets up a shot. We're doing a scene in, in the film, Leo races back to his girlfriend's house, this woman he's met in uh, Syria and is, and is attracted to, he races back to her house because he believes she's been kidnapped. And, we, and she lives on a three, her, she lives with her sister, and it's a three, they're on the third floor. There's a camera on the ground floor, a camera on the second floor, a camera on the third floor, and a steady cam waiting to take Leo through the apartment. So I had a mic down on the first floor, a mic down on the second floor, a mic up on the uh, third floor, and then a, the boom guy was following the steady cam through the apartment, chasing Leo, who goes all through the apartment, and then in the kitchen, he picks up his cell phone and calls uh, the CIA. And I thought to myself, gosh, this is, this is a crazy way to shoot because you've got people focusing on the first floor, you've got people focusing on the second floor, and you've got all kinds of stuff going on on the top floor. And, uh, but everything went off smoothly, and uh, Ridley was always incredibly complimentary to me. I mean, he actually came to me at one point and said it was the best production sound he'd ever had on a film, which really floored me because a guy with his career and his record, he's heard a lot of sound. And he said to me, he goes, that's true. He goes, in fact, he goes, one of the problems I have with your sound is that it's so good, the dialogue is so upfront, there's no background. I can't hear the background noise. And I said, well, I'm doing something, I'm, I'm using, using my microphones to eliminate the background as much as I can to bring the dialogue up front because the post guys will be able to so add, add in whatever they want. Yeah. And that's exactly what um, Per Halberg, the uh, sound effects editor on the film, very accomplished Academy Award winning sound effects editor, Pear said to him, he goes, this is perfect, because the dialogue's up front, and we can always add stuff, but it, you can't take stuff away. And in the film, there's stuff that I know that they've augmented, and then there's stuff that I know they haven't, and it all, I think it all works. It's, I, I think it's a good sounding film. It's the only film I've ever done that everybody was wearing a lavalier the whole time. Nowadays, a lot of these films are using radio mics, but they're not using the technique that I have where it kind of takes the onus off a radio mic. You know, I have a really hard time watching westerns that have radio mics on them because it just takes me out of the whole western moment. I grew up on watching westerns that were all boomed, had no radio mics, and now the, the technique is, hey, let's wire everybody, and we've got all these multi-track recorders, let's throw a radio mic on everybody and we'll mix it later. 
and I, I just, it just really hurts me that that's the direction things have gone. But the technology of radio mics also has never been better than it is now. And so with that in mind, you know, things can be done. Le Miserable was recorded with all radio mics and sung. So, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're better than they've ever been before, and it's a quality, that, and you can get them to sound as good as you want them to. And then after that, I, you know, the business started slowing down, and the incentive program in the United States was such that film, was being, film work was going out of state. And three times I was asked to do a film against one of the local mixers in these states, and I ended up losing it to someone with lesser credits and lesser ability than I, and I just thought, are you want to hire me for my ability and my talent, or do you want to just have a warm body that headphones on, you know? They apparently, producers nowadays, just want the warm body and a local resident. That's the most important thing to them because they get a incentive. Tax credit. Yeah. <clears throat> so I approached the vendors that I had dealt with over the years because I thought maybe that was a business that I could get into and help other mixers and help other sound people out and then pass along some knowledge and encourage them towards their careers at the same time. So I approached Rich Topham, who runs Pro Sound in New York, and I said, hey, you know, thinking about getting in your line of business. And Rich said, well, if you're, in, if you're serious, I'll, you know, if the opportunity comes up, I'll give you a call. The New Orleans store was opened in November of 2012, and um, in March of 2013, the fellow that had opened it with Rich wanted out. So Rich called me up and said, if you're serious, here's the, here's the opportunity, and let's see what happens. And so we, Rich and I worked out an arrangement to work, work there for a year, then we would both evaluate how well I did or how much I liked it and you know what, where to go from there. And it's been interesting. I do know the gear. I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy sharing my experiences with people. And it's great. I, I spend at least an hour every day with somebody that just calls me out of the blue and wants to talk about a certain microphone or you know, how would you do this or what would you suggest for that. I enjoy that. And that, to me, I feel it kind of is like a giving back from what the industry has done for me. It, it's really tough. I mean, I, I really miss production. I, I really enjoy it. And I'd kind of like to go back, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm going to go back or you know what's going to happen. But uh, we'll see where that goes from there. One thing I really love about your story is that it all essentially comes from you showing up for a delivery gig. Yeah. So many people who made it to the top of the game, they started either falling into it and finding out they loved it, or, you know, I will take anything. Let me get my foot in the door, and I will work my ass off to get up that ladder. Right, yeah. And uh, your story is obviously... Uh, yeah, thanks. I appreciate that, that acknowledgement, because it really was. Of my peer group, I was the youngest mixer. Um, Jeff Wexler, Art Rochester, uh, Bill Kaplan, myself, we were all peers but I was the youngest by like seven to eight years. And so I was always the kid mixer of our group, but I always considered myself their peer. That's what I strive for. I held those guys in high regard and I wanted to, to work to be like they were. And I must say, one of the things that the internet has spawned is the ability for us all to contact one another. And it's been remarkable that the uh, interest I get you know, through JW Sound Group uh, with people all over the world just wanting to ask me a question about a film or something I've done. And uh, it's scary to think that somebody in Singapore is aware of your work and who knows your name and you know, knows your career. And wow, how's that happen? Is that Edward Snowden that knows all that stuff about me? <laughs> but I enjoy it. I, I enjoy it. And I also enjoy talking, as you well know. So that's, uh, that helps. That helps in both businesses. Yeah, you know? So what is your, your rig? What, what's your main rig? The other thing that I wanted to do as a sound mixer, I always wanted to present myself as a guy that worked with the, the best gear, the state of the art. And the state of the art had changed over the course of my career. When I started, we were recording on a mono nagra, one track, and we were responsible to mix however many microphones we needed for that scene. We had to mix to that one track, and that one track was used or not used. And that was a really great feeling. And then we moved up to two-track Nagras, and, or a stereo Nagra if you want, and with a time code. And that was a big step up as well. And then we went to the DAT era, and I bought, I, at each level, I bought the, the best machine that I could. 
and then we went from that to um, uh, non-linear with the Diva 2, and then a Diva 4 was the last machine I had, which is an 8-track recorder, which is what I thought was going to be the most tracks I'd ever need. Of course, now they have a Diva 16, and they have a Sound Device 907 that has 64 64 that just came out, yeah. I mean, I, I understand there are uses for that, but in my world, I don't think so. But that's, that remains to be seen. Uh, and I never thought we'd have all these tracks and be doing all this stuff, because back in the um, 80s, Robert Altman tried to do 8-track uh, recording with lavalier mics on everybody, and it was a terrific failure. This film called Health was the first one he tried to do it with. And there's crosstalk on all the channels, and it was just a mess. But it was the infancy of multi-track recording. And he did the same thing on Nashville and all of his films. He always had multi-track recorders and lots of layers to his sound. Altman was, one of, was known as a sound director. When we were in the DAT era, Six Feet Under was going to be started with a pilot. Six Feet Under's pilot was going to be directed by Alan Ball. It had been written by Alan Ball, who also was the writer on American Beauty. So when I saw that, I called Alan up and I said, you know, he and I had become friends on, or friendly on um, American Beauty. And I called him up and I said, hey, listen, Alan, I said, I saw you're directing this pilot, congratulations. You know, if you'd like a familiar face behind the mixing panel, I'd be happy to do your pilot. And he said, oh my gosh, he said, I didn't know you would consider doing TV. I didn't think to ask, but I would love to have him. So I got hired to do this, the pilot. And HBO actually asked me to record on my time code Nagra. And I said, oh, fantastic, because I love my Nagra much more than the DAT. And I, at the Nagra, the T-Track Nagra at 15 IPS gives you a similar noise to uh, signal to noise ratio that a DAT recorder had. And that was the re big reason for moving up to DAT. But DAT was not a full spectrum recording because of the sampling rates and what the technology had at the time. So, I still could prove to people that I could make a better analog recording than I could with um, the DAT machine. You didn't have to worry about the machine eating the tapes either. Well, I had a Stella DAT, which wasn't, didn't have those peccadillos. The Fostec, I feel sorry for guys that bought Fostecs because there were nightmare stories of in the middle of a take, the machine just going into fast forward and all these ridiculous things. And what we would do is we had the Nagra, because most of us still owned our Nagras, they would have us roll the Nagra as backup support for a failing DAT or an unstable DAT for, uh, format. So they called me up and wanted, wanted me to do it with my Nagra, and I said, oh, fantastic, you know? So when we got to the set, I rolled the Nagra and we did the show. I thought it sounded great. I actually won a Cinema Audio Society Award for the pilot for Six Feet Under. And um, they call, the post guy calls me up and goes, hey, where's your DAT backups? And I said, what do you mean DAT backups? And he goes, well, didn't you roll a DAT backup to the Nagra? And I said, no, no, you got that backwards. I said, the Nagra is the most reliable machine ever made for film production. I said, we roll the Nagra to support and back up the DAT, which is the most unstable and unreliable format we ever in film production. And he said, you're kidding. You didn't roll a backup? And I said, no, there was no need for it. And he said, oh my gosh. And I said, they're easy enough to make. You can make a copy. And he goes, I can't believe you did that. And I said, well, you know, I'm sorry, it's done now. You know, get over yourself. And then we went on to win the award for best sound, which I thought was vindication for only picking to roll just the nod. <clears throat> the technology changes since I started. I mean, when I started and radio mics were in their infancy, they were so finicky and so unreliable that you did everything you could to not use them. And now it's the go-to microphone for most people on any job. And it's a shame, but that's just the way that our business is, has turned. And part of that is that there is still a lot of ambient noise on a lot of film sets, and a lavalier does keep your background very low. So that in that respect, it's fine. But like one of the reasons that we sound so good on these lavaliers, not only because they're DPAs, but because they're out in the open. But if we were to bury these underneath our clothing, it would just open ourselves up to a you know, myriad of issues. You mentioned earlier that you use the Neumann mic. Uh, is that your preferred brand or do you run the Spectrum? So when I started, Sennheiser was the only game in town. It was the 15 series back then. I had a 415 and an 815. And the 405 was my plant mic. And there were no other manu mic manufacturers making mics for uh, film production. 
And then Neumann was the first manufacturer to try and get in the game, creating the KMR series of the 82i and the 81i. And I didn't like the 81i as much, but I did think the 82 was a great replacement for the 815, which was a very long mic with a very narrow pattern and very hard to boom. It's heavy. Yeah, heavy, long, and just the narrowest of patterns, like a pinpoint of light, like one of those little laser pointers, you know? And uh, the 82i had a wider pattern and was you know, widely accepted in the, in the industry. So much so that Sennheiser bought Neumann to put them out of business. Then, Sen then Sennheiser came out with the MKH-70, which was an exact mimic of the characteristics of a KMR 82i, but in a lighter body. And so then I switched over to Sennheiser MKH-70s, but I had always been a Sheps guy. When Sheps came out in the early 80s, I was an early adopter of that microphone, and it was a game changer. It was a microphone made for film production, it had a lot of functions about it. You could change the mic, head, the capsules on the mic. You could put a swivel into the mic to make the mic a very low profile. You could add a collect cable as a plant mic, which was rendered the mic to about two and a half inches tall, which was exceptional for plant mics that we had never had that before. On a, on a table now at a dining scene, you could hide the mic behind the pepper or salt yes. shaker and record the scene perfectly. So that was always a big game changer for me, the Sheps. Um, you know, the, unfortunately, one of the bad things about the internet is Sheps has developed a very bad reputation for working in humid conditions. But I've never had that issue. I know many people that are longtime Sheps owners that have never had that issue. On Sarah Marshall, we use Sheps every day, never had a problem with them. And, but there's, there's uh, steps I took to, work, to concern myself about the humidity. I would unscrew the capsules. I always kept silica gel in my uh, boxes with the mics to keep them dry, and I never had an issue. But uh, if, you're on, if you read the internet, don't yeah, buy Sheps. Yeah. Don't buy Sheps because they don't work in humidity. And that's too bad. I mean, uh, that's one of the bad things about the internet is it spawned a bunch of internet experts who really are just proselytizing what they've read somewhere else and somebody else said. And uh, that's an unfortunate aspect that happens. In fact, I was talking to the Sheps representative yesterday about it, and she said the same thing. She said, she goes, it's, what, what happens is it's the Sennheiser people that always say, oh yeah, you know, those Sheps are terrible in humidity, you can't use them. I use my 50. Well, the 50 is just a hard-built mic. It can't be configured to any yeah. of the ways the Sheps can. But I have had, the only humidity failure I ever had with a microphone was with uh, Sennheiser. A 415. But I don't go on the internet and tell that story because there's 20 other guys that are going to come at me saying that they don't. But the 50 is a very popular microphone. I owned two of them for one whole year, never used them, and then finally sold them as used because they just didn't. Every time I brought them out to use them, I preferred the sound of the chefs and I went with the chefs. Jim Webb was a very famous sound mixer. And Jim Webb uh, would frequently do scenes and sometimes entire movies with just shotgun mics. And again, it's the signal-to-noise ratio thing, and that was his theory. And because Jim was so well-respected, I thought I would try that on a film that I was doing. It was an interesting experience, and I really enjoyed the way I had a great boom operator, was able to nail everybody with this uh, difficult mic. But um, whether or not it was totally necessary, if your set is quiet, you don't necessarily need the shotgun. The, the smaller, the shorter mics that are still now, the word now, instead of shotgun, the, the marketing word is cardioid. And the reason that came about was because Sheps, when they released their mics, they called it a hypercardioid pattern. And everybody else followed suit. Sennheiser did a great marketing thing where they call their mics super cardioid. So it must be better, it's super. But it's interesting marketing-wise and how they pick up on all that stuff and they try to you know, reach their market through familiar buzzwords and stuff like that. I was always a guy that, used mics indoors, uh, a, a Sheps indoors, but then a shotgun outside because I always wanted the shotgun outside to, to drop the background away. Uh, but there are some guys that will use the same mics inside and outside. Again, it's just personal preference. Sound is very subjective in that what you think sounds good, I might not think sounds good, and mics that you like, I might not like. And that doesn't mean that you're not right, it's right for you. And if the people that you're working for appreciate what you think sounds good, 
you're solid. And I don't, I don't try to force it on anybody. You know, everybody's experience is different. I have guys that are working with Audio-Technica mics, Rode mics, and when they ask me my opinion of them, I tell them I think they're, they're toy mics. They're, you know, they're not pro mics. They're, they are at best prosumer, but they're not pro. And I always tell them, if you can name a movie that was recorded with a Rode mic, tell me and I'll change my opinion. But to this date, I don't know anything. But I'm sure when people hear this, a hundred people will sign on saying, oh, I recorded my feature with a Rode. Oh, what's your feature? Oh, it's, it's uh, Bunny's Big Day. Did, was it out in the movie theaters? Oh no, it went directly to DVD, but you know, I recorded it with a Rode. Okay, well, good for you. That, you know, I hope you got paid very well for Bunny's Big Day. <laughs> In terms of recorders, you're a diva fan. Yes. Yeah. Zaxcom, Zaxcom is the state of the art right now. Their wireless mics are state of the art. Their mixer recorders are state of the art. You know, I have, a, I have an expression that I use that, I've, that has upset some people, but you have to be smarter than the equipment you're working with. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that don't know or, and miss, miss very obvious stuff because they just don't know their equipment well enough. And before you ever consider to make yourself a mixer, you should be well acquainted with the gear. And that is the least of your responsibilities is to be able to operate all this stuff. But the internet allows you to write on a, you know, sign onto a forum and say, how do you turn this machine on? And 15 guys will go, oh, with your left hand on the right button and your right hand on the left button. It's a different time now as far as, you know, your work history goes and what, what your uh, experience brings you. And even at a show like this at NEB, you know, there are people here that are working for churches. There are people here that are working for government jobs. There are people here working for corporate uh, media productions. And then there's people working on major f feature films. Um, so it, it's quite a different, quite a cross-section of people that you see here. And they're all working and they all, you know, consider themselves, you know, equal. but in different fields, you know. Uh, so it's, it, uh, I, I always wanted to be the state of the art guy. So when Zaxcon came around and their Diva got, I didn't go with the Diva one because it was pretty crazy and unstable and they were delivering on zip drives. And I just thought that, or and actually they were originally floppy disks and then zip drives became the stable format. And then I just thought, no, that's, I don't think so. So I waited for the Diva two to come out when they were had a, they had a, no, not internal. No, that was still an external DVD burner and oh, a jacketed okay. yeah. DVD at that. So, uh, and those, those were a companion machine that other manufacturers sold to work with the Diva. And that was the first machine, the first digital machine I ever used that recorded a full spectrum recording and operated flawlessly. I never had an issue with that machine ever. And, or nor with my four. But, you know, again, there's you know stories on the internet. People had nightmare experiences with Zaxcom products, but I often believe that that's their own fault. I've had customers that I've sold products to, and they've been unable to uh, operate them. And I don't fault them. You know, I sell them what they want. You know, uh, I, I you know I took a camera hop back from a guy that couldn't get it to work when we had it in the shop. We plugged it, hooked it all up, and it worked fine. But he just couldn't get it to work his comfort zone is with other equipment and so that's that's a big issue with sound guys your comfort zone you know you, you don't want to be working in an edgy situation where anything could go wrong at any moment but you know that's there is an ability to achieve a comfort zone with higher end gear but it's an educational process and some people's education stopped very early i mean mine stopped at high school <laughs> And I don't know how I got here with a, uh, I had a D average when I graduated high school and you know, thank God I found the film business. You know? But, uh, and Zaxcom today carries on. They're doing great work. Sound Devices is doing some interesting stuff, but I, I'm just, I'm not clear what direction they're going with all these, you know, giant track count recorders. Um, but I, I imagine they must feel there's a market for that stuff. You know? There has to be, or else they wouldn't be making it. <laughs> Thank you very much. This was amazing. Oh, it was my pleasure, Tim. Thanks Great. so much. Thank you. And where do I send the bill? <laughs> <laughs>Thanks to everyone who listens and takes part in the podcast. Thanks again to Rich for his time and all of his great tales of life in the production sound world. 
Thanks to Stacy DePass for letting us bend and twist her voice on the intros. Looking forward to talking to you all again soon. Thanks for listening to Tone Vendors. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.